0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 93 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This week marked the two year anniversary of my video streaming show, Cocktails in the War Room, which you can watch live on my Facebook page every Tuesday night at 830 Eastern. And to celebrate, you can get 20% off of the Cocktails in the War Room t-shirts and hoodies, plus my beer koozies, pint glasses and shot glasses if you use the code CITWR2 for Cocktails in the War Room second anniversary. Just head to MistressCarry.com and click shop if you want to check out everything that's in the online store. And I also want to say thank you to my new Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass holders, Will and Denise. Mistress Carrie Backstage Passes get you extra access to me and everything that's going on. You get discount codes for the online store, exclusive travel blogs and photos. We do a monthly live stream together and you get exclusive access to amazing free concert tickets. And you get to submit questions for podcast guest interviews, just like you'll hear in this episode. And what an episode it is. Joe Satriani is the world's most commercially successful solo guitar performer. He's got six gold and platinum albums to his credit, and that doesn't include the gold album he's got with his band, Chicken Foot. You know, the band he's got with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony and Chad Smith. He sold over 10 million albums, and he is one of the most well-respected guitarists in rock and roll. I was so excited to find out that he was coming on the podcast. He's got a new album on the way called The Elephants of Mars, which is, by the way, his 19th studio album, and it's coming out on April 8th. And in this interview, we talked about everything, about how he grew up wanting to be a drummer his early musical influences, working with his kids, his songwriting process, his artwork, comic books, and so much more. Joe Satriani is the kind of person you could talk to for hours. So allow me to introduce you to Joe Satriani.
1: And you're listening to Mistress Carrie Hi everybody, this is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters And you're listening to the one, the only
0: Mr. Satriani.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. It's nice to see you again.
1: Nice to see you.
0: Where are you right Ma- now? Because you guys are never home.
1: No, uh, we are in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm here to shoot a video with my son directing. We're doing the title track, The Elephants of Mars, this week.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited.
0: So, when your son's directing the video, do you really have to do what he tells you to do? How does that work? Because you're the dad.
1: <laughs> I relinquish that role immediately as soon as I walk into the studio, and I just do whatever he tells me to do. I don't even question it. He's well, you know he's got he's got the whole vision. We've done so much together uh, that there's a you know complete trust.
0: There seems to be this gene of creativity when it comes to musicians their children and their parents and this this evolution of art you know artists and creativity and obviously it runs strong in your family too
1: (laughs) it's a it's a pretty crazy household um you know there's there's uh art and music and um boy growing up uh turned our basement into a skate park i mean it was just it was pretty noisy, I got to say, between guitar amps and skateboards. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, Zizi started making films when he was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And so it just, you know, having the camera around was something that was really normal. Uh, he started doing podcasts for the band when he was traveling with us. You know, we brought him on tour, I think as soon as he turned four. I think that's when we started bringing him out on tour. So, um, yeah, a bit of a... <clears throat> Circus vibe.
0: <laughs> he never In had a prayer of growing up a normal kid and just becoming like an accountant.
1: <laughs> oh, no chance. That probably would have been a good idea, but there you go. <laughs>
0: growing up, were your parents musical? Where did it come from for you? Uh,
1: my mother could play piano, and I have great memories of, of uh, sitting right next to her at the family piano and You know, she could uh, read and play, and she'd play standards or boogie woogie or stuff like that. You know, both my parents were jazz age kids who grew up in New York City, Uh, and there was a lot of music in the house because I was the youngest of five kids. So uh, I watched my older sisters, my older brother, just really embrace early rock and roll, all the music of the '60s, and when they all left in you know late '60s, early '70s to go to college. I wound up with all the records. And and so I wound up with this sort of eclectic foundation of music. um, And uh, it's it's stayed with me to this day.
0: Your parents weren't yelling at you to turn down that loud rock and roll?
1: No, no. As a matter of fact, my parents were so cool. They would let my band play in the basement, rehearse, and they were the ones who would, you know, talk down the cops when they would come because (laughs) the neighbor complained, you know, and they would, you know, they would always run interference for us, let us play in the backyard. And uh, uh, they they were uh, and then, Now, it could have been because I was the youngest of five and they had just given up, you know, by they the were time just burned 19- out. Yeah. In 1970, they'd just been through everything. The 60s were enough and they thought, oh, I'll just let this one do whatever he wants. Um, Uh, But I like to think that they just saw something in me and they thought, why not? He's not going to be a lawyer or an accountant. Uh, So, might as well, you know, let him be a musician.
0: How do you go from sitting at the piano with your mom to having a band in the basement playing guitar? When did you get your first one and what was it? Do you remember?
1: Well, you know, there was this little interim period where um, I wanted to be a drummer. And I did take lessons starting at about age nine for about three years. And it took about three years for me to realize I was really going to suck as a drummer. <laughs> so, uh, but I loved it. So uh, right about that, uh, during that period, I was really getting into uh, what my older sisters and her boyfriends were bringing over, which was Hendrix, Zeppelin, Cream, The Who, all that great music. And uh, the day that Jimi Hendrix died, I decided to become a guitar player. And uh, it was just so happened that my my two older sisters, twin sisters, had started teaching art because they they were art majors uh, and they were teaching in the local high schools. And uh, it was the beginning. It was September. So it's beginning of the school year. And my sister, Carol, decided she would donate her first paycheck to getting me a guitar. And uh, and that's how it started. And, Please uh, tell
0: me you still have it. I don't. Oh, <laughs> Where is no, it? No, I
1: don't. Uh, I actually uh, sold it to one of my young students who fell in love with it, and I thought it was a good idea at the time. But since then, because a lot of my fans know that story, uh, I very often get the exact same model and year as gifts from my fans. It was a, a, an inexpensive guitar at the time, a budget guitar from Sweden called a Hackstrom 3. And it was the closest thing that looked to what Hendrix was playing, his white Stratocaster, but, you know, about one-tenth the cost. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) When did you realize that you weren't just making noise with it, that you were actually able to play it? I asked Zach Wilde that question, and he said when he could play Back in Black along to the record, he was like, okay, I think I got this thing figured out. Do you remember (laughs) when that was for you?
1: Um. I got to say, I mean, every day I go through that question period (laughs) where I go like is like, you know, I say, Joe, is that noise or can you actually play like you did yesterday? You know, it's kind of a neurosis in a way. You know, I wake up every day and I'm thinking like, am I going to be able to write a song like I did yesterday? Uh, Can I play as good as yesterday? I better find out. And, you know, uh, some days it's harder than others to get started especially like if you're out on tour and you're, you're playing killing yourself every night. And and Zach could tell you this because he, he just gives everything to his audience, you know, every night, remarkable performer um, that sometimes you get up, you know, and you're in a foreign country and you haven't slept well for months. And you go like, ow, as he flex your fingers and you go, might you be able to play or just like hold a cup of coffee this morning. Uh, and so there's this routine you go through of convincing yourself it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be all right. You start doing it and you get a little confidence and before you know it, you're on stage again and having fun.
0: When I talk to guitar players and I've been fortunate enough, especially since COVID to have these amazing conversations with artists, musicians. One of the things that I was shocked by is how many guitar players can't read music. How many guitar players never took formal lessons can't read music at all. And they just kind of play by feel? Now growing up with a piano player in the house, my assumption is you can read music, but am I wrong?
1: Oh, I can read music. I'm not a sight reader. You know, there's a, there's a difference. There's reading music is being able to decipher manuscript, uh, as it's written down and, and, uh, for mainly is for your instrument, um, because drum, you know, I learned how to read drum music first, and that's very different than guitar music, which is different from piano music and so on and so forth. Uh, but then there's psych reading, which is if someone puts something in front of you, uh, like what you do, they give you a, a, a news notice, puts in front of you and you can just read it first cold, time. Cold reading. With a, it's hard. Yeah. 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 It's really hard. And it's it's I have friends who can do that. I had an uncle uh, who was a professional musician and he not only had the ability to cold read like that, but he had a photographic memory. One one look and he had a note for note in his mind. It's really interesting talent. So, uh, yeah, you know, playing music for people is um, it's a multifaceted talent and it takes all kinds to to provide all the different ways to make people happy with your music. And so it you don't really need to be able to sight read or to read, uh, but it certainly helps some people. Sometimes, let's say if you're if you work for a, a classical orchestra, uh, you better know how to read. <laughs> it's the only way to do the gig and to make your audience happy is to, is to play the, those classical selections note for note, perfect. But if you're in a blues band, of course, you don't need to read. But there are talents you need to have if you want to make your uh, your audience happy. And it's just as important.
0: When it comes to the actual writing for you, music writing, Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Cantrell told me that he sings um, riffs in his phone to remember them. Zach Wilde told me that he only writes when he's got a project he needs to write for and kind of channels the creativity into whatever song he's working on. And he sits down and writes it all in one shot and he's done. What's your process.
1: Oh, I'm writing all the time. Uh, I will jot it down on a napkin, a notepad. I will play it in the phone. Um, sometimes i'll sing it into the phone if that's all i got um i make a habit of if i'm home of course discipline is extremely important which is you know you you make sure you have an environment somewhere in your house where you can go up flip a few switches and record Uh, i think that's probably more important uh, because sometimes you get an idea right let's say you get an idea for something called the elephants of mars it's like it's so it's so silly that if you don't really put it down when it's fresh in your mind, when you go back to it a few days later, you look at it and you go, what, what was I thinking? You know, it's like, that's a crazy idea. That'll never work. Uh, but if you if you have a discipline of following your inspiration the moment it hits and not let go of it until you've got a real tangible version of it that you can refer to later, um, then it... You know, I think that's so important, having that discipline. So for me, it's having a little studio uh, set up. If I'm on a tour, it'll be on the tour bus. If I'm at home, it'll be in my home studio. I make it as easy as possible to record the, the first uh, blush, so to speak, when I'm most enthusiastic about the idea. And then I can return to it and it allows me to finish it and be more productive.
0: The new album comes out on April 8th and you talk about this kind of wacky idea of the elephants of Mars. Can you give give me an example of a song off the record where maybe the inspiration came in an inopportune time? Like you wake up in a dream, you're checking out at the supermarket and you just get this idea or do they all kind of come while you're holding the guitar and kind of sitting there plucking away? Oh yeah.
1: And boy, after 19 albums, the songs have come in every possible moment you can imagine that is right and wrong (laughs) times when, you know, you're, you're actually working on another song. Um, And then uh, I I can remember working on uh, a song many years ago, I was working on a song called uh, uh, big bad moon. uh, And for some reason I was getting bored with the lyrics or whatever I was trying to do with it. And I suddenly had this idea about uh, a song called Flying in a Blue Dream. And I wound up recording, writing and recording the demo when I shouldn't have, but right in the middle of when I was supposed to be working on Big Bad Moon. And it was probably because I didn't like the sound of my voice because Big Bad Moon was a vocal song. And so it was a great way to step away from the reality of my singing chops and, and just to focus on something instrumental. Then I went back to it and I went, oh, that's that's a really good song. And then it just grew until it became the title track of an album. And uh, so those things do happen where you write the, you know, the right song at the wrong time or a great riff comes to you. And and the only thing you can do is jot it down. Um, I'll tell you, I was taught by my high school music theory teacher to assign numbers to notes that I'm imagining in my head to, to be able to perceive what we call intervals, the distances between the notes, then assign the numbers, and then remember the numbers so that when I finally do get to an instrument, I can play that riff because I've stored it in my head numerically. And that was a great way for me never to lose track of a great idea.
0: I was gonna ask you about that because you, you talked about Hendrix and there have been people that said he had synesthesia where he kind of saw notes as colors. And mm. I didn't even know that that was a thing. And when I interviewed Mike Mangini, I, I, he was sitting behind the drum kit and I asked him like to give me an example of what's going through his head when he's playing. (laughs) And obviously as a drummer, as technically, you know, superior as a guy like Mangini is, he, he was saying the math and the counting that was going on in his head. So I was going to ask you when you play notes, do you see colors? But you're answering the question, you see numbers? That's how you learned?
1: No, well, well, that's not how I. No, that's just a method for. Oh, okay. For keeping track of a musical idea when you're not around an instrument. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, what so are that, you that, hearing
0: that, when you're playing? Like, what is it? Colors? Is it shapes? Because you're an artist as well, so you have this kind of meld of the two.
1: I, yeah, I, I'm primarily feeling. what i'm doing i'm trying to represent emotions and and visual memories into sound and 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 notes and and putting notes and harmony and rhythm together uh yeah everybody thinks of it in a different way and i I don't think I, i think it's all good in other words one method doesn't work over the other uh some people I mean, you mentioned Mike Mangini, who is probably one of the craziest people I've ever met Off in my entire life. the final. rails. <laughs>
0: crazy. I've known him for yeah. years. He's a local hero for all of us here. And like, he's just somebody whose brain, if I ever got to go inside, I think would be a really <laughs> scary place for me to be because I just don't yes. understand him. Yeah, I love you, don't Mike, want- <laughs> but you're crazy.
1: <laughs> he is. Yeah, he, he's a wonderful person you wouldn't want to be in the brain of Mike Mangini and, and he is a genius when it comes to uh, to being a, just a fantastic drummer and his, his ability to shape and play with time is really, uh, really remarkable. Uh, that's what makes him such a, such a great drummer along with the fact that he's totally crazy, Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, always, always a fun time uh, with Mike, but yeah, every, every musician has a different way of, uh, I think um, getting the, the feeling out of them and w- it's kind of like whatever it takes, you know, like if, if the only thing you, you know, have next to you is a ukulele, well then you just got to make it work so that you can build the song in your head. Once it's really, I think that the, the nuts and bolts are all sort of laid out in your mind about how you're going to, let's say, you know, uh, write a song, uh, you know, about an apple or a banana, uh, then you could, you know, that by the, when I get to the studio, I'll be able to do this correctly. And so everybody has a different method. Somebody have you know, some people think colors or numbers or, or, or make a little movie in their head about a character doing something. Um, and it changes from song to song. It's not like, you know, that each musician only has one method. I think they employ whatever method works at the time.
0: I want to hear the Joe Satriani ukulele song about a banana. And I know I'm not the only one.
1: <laughs> I, if I had one here <laughs> in this hotel room, I'd play it for you, but I don't. I'm sort of missing that right now. <laughs>
0: I talked to a lot of guitar players about tone. And Slash told me recently that, the, that it's a never-ending search for your perfect tone. What do you attribute guitar tone to? Where do you think it comes from in a player?
1: Uh, Well, that's really, uh, really interesting. Uh, I think that without a doubt, um, any instrument where the finger is going to needs to touch the thing that's going to vibrate and make the sound uh, that the personality is going to come out Um, and it may not be the way the person feels, but it, it is undeniably the sound that that finger makes. And so that's why we can really tell the difference between Slash and Mark Knopfler. You know, I mean, it's just so remarkable. And they're both amazing musicians, but they're never going to sound like each other. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're always going to sound exactly like the way we want them to sound, which is original. And um, so uh, the other thing, though, is what is it in the mind of the musician that makes them say, Mm, that amp, I, it needs to be darker or brighter or cleaner or more distorted. And, and that al- has to do with, I think, the expression of the moment, the meaning of the song. Uh, I'm sure uh, when Slash is in the studio, he's got a lot of different amps he can use. And he's thinking this song needs this because I'm trying to get people to feel like that, you know, and uh, we spend a lot of time in the studio just arranging the sound so that we can tell the story properly in the song. And uh, I, I think about like the Beatles, when I first heard that song revolution and the the distortion on the it's guitar,
0: so dirty and the- messy.
1: Yeah. So that, that sends a message, you know what I mean? That sends such a, an important message to the listener. And uh, so it's a good example of, uh, of, of, of how that how a musician will go from song to song and make the sound specific for that song and that story.
0: I asked the Mistress Carrie backstage pass holders if they had questions for you. And Travis came up with a good one that I think ties into what we're talking about. He wanted to know how it is that you're able to separate and differentiate every one of your albums because they all kind of stand on their own is that a conscious thing or does it just happen because you're in a different place in your life at the time
1: um I definitely uh, work on the concept of an album as a group of songs and I I set out goals for each of the albums um, that that I that I use as a sort of a guideline so that the album isn't just including too many, you know, things, uh, because sometimes when you try to include too much, you actually water down the effectiveness of the overall impact. Um, so for instance, like the extremist album, I knew I wanted it to be about my, my sort of love letter to classic rock, which was in a way I always felt like I missed it cause I was just too young, just by a couple of years. Uh, I missed it. So I, I wanted to do that. So we were in a big studio in L.A. and I've got Andy Johns producing and, you know, we we. We excluded a lot of things that were happening at the time. And and that in that way, we were able to narrow the focus and intensify the focus of the music. Um, this time around, my whole idea was better writing, better arranging, better playing, better recording. Uh, more truthful performances as a start, you know. And so, you know, I think the 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 more the better writing thing was probably the thing that provided the most amount of energy to make the Elephants of Mars uh, unique and stand out from shape shifting and you know what happens next and all the other previous albums.
0: And they're it's coming out on this amazing colored vinyl selection. Yes. <laughs> now, do you pick the colors for that? How does that work? Because I'm a huge lover of vinyl, but the colored vinyl to me is just so good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Now, you know, um, all these albums are a result of great teamwork and I'm blessed that I have people around me who are so uh, inspired and so talented in all these different things. So I depend on great musicians and mix engineers and engineers uh, for, for the audio part. Uh, I've been working with uh, Todd Galapo for Meat and Potatoes for many years for all the album projects. He also did the Chicken Foot albums. And uh, Todd's just got such a beautiful and strong artistic sense. Um, and so I, get, I give that whole project to him. He came up with the whole logo and the album cover within like an hour after it, I sent It's
0: really a cool... My- concept with the, the guitars is the elephants it's very cool
1: isn't that great yeah. i mean that's that's a true uh, artist you know uh todd is really amazing and uh so yeah we we talk about like how far do you want to go and i generally say you know you go crazy with it this is what the whole thing's about i wrote him little stories about all the songs so that he would know kind of like what was going on uh with the album and the direction of it and he just kind of runs with it uh, and always comes up with this great stuff and so yeah he picked the colors for the vinyl uh ear music thank god they've been so uh wonderful in uh moving in this direction of giving the fans what they want from these album uh, packages lp and cd the cd package comes with cards for every song that has original artwork on it so it's, it's great. You know, the, the, the whole project is, is turning out to be not only fun musically, but also artistically.
0: And your part is obviously the writing and the playing. And I say that because um, I started asking songwriters this question and the answers are always amazing. So I'll ask you the same question as a songwriter. This is a craft question. Can you give me an example or two of what you consider to be perfect songwriting, any genre, any artist, but then, but break it down as to why you think it's perfect songwriting.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I could pick so many, um, it's well, a hard here, question
0: a... for music lovers. Cause there are so many great songs, but yeah,
1: yeah, cause we, we immediately, we think we know a thousand that we want to talk about, <laughs> but, um, here's one that really surprised me. Uh, uh, in the last few months where I was doing a lot after I finished the album, I was doing a lot of painting and I'd put on uh, full collections of artists that I'd known for you know years, listened to. But I hadn't had the time to actually sit down and for, let's say, six hours, just listen to every song in their catalog over and over again. And what blew me away was Since I've Been Love With You by Led Zeppelin. And uh, because not only is the album version like, just so wonderful it's just like a it's just like a beautiful dream that you that no rock band has ever really created anything like that it's when you really get down to it i i I still can't understand why a band like that would even think that they could attempt a song so deep like that and and create a performance so unique Uh, and each you know the four of them it's just freaky how good it is uh, and the sound is so cool. And then you go and you listen to what they did to it live. And you go, these, these guys live more dangerously on stage like, than any other band because they would just take it so far. They would never try to recreate the album vibe. They they each had their own story and trajectory in playing that song. And they would just go off in their own tangents. And somehow, because they were a, a fantastic unit they would always bring it back together but every night they played i bet if like we could have followed them around and seen a hundred shows we would have seen a hundred completely different versions of that song and so that makes that in a way you go back and you go like well it's obvious their talent is allowing them to do that but what is the thing that is the catalyst and it's the song it's the composition they wrote this beautiful perfect song that is obviously a blues song, but it doesn't sound like anybody else's blues song, like nobody else's. You can listen to a hundred, a 1, thousand blues albums, you're not gonna find that, you know, and not with that sort of blend of reverence and irreverence and just the fact that they're British and they're, they're doing something like that. I, I just think it's pretty amazing. I had such a great time, uh, you know, listening to the, all that. Zeppelin stuff. and But when that would come on, I'd stop. I'd have to stop and just stare at the speakers and go, wow.
0: So when you're painting, that's what you do. You take one artist and listen to the whole catalog. And then does it seep into the art in a way? Are there examples of your paintings that are like, you know, the, the, the Led Zeppelin era <laughs> of Satriani's artwork? How does you know, like different artists have, this is the blue period. And this is the, do you have this Led Zeppelin period of your paintings?
1: Probably that'll, that'll, maybe we'll be able to figure that out in years to come, but I think it's more like, um, I feel emboldened, you know, when, when I'm listening to music like that, like there were a couple of weeks there where it was a lot of Black Sabbath. It was just hours of Black Sabbath. And, and, uh, Now, it's maybe because I grew up listening to it and playing it in in bands when I was in high school that it was, you know, it added that inspiration. But I felt like uh, I had there was more I was getting courage, you know what I mean, to to attack the canvas because I was hearing the wizard coming from the other room really loud. You know, and again, a band that really stayed focused, but took chances and stayed original uh it's really remarkable um and i'm not sure you get that if you get caught up like in the promo of a band and and you're always looking at it relative to what else has been released that week or that month it's different than when uh you you look at a band's catalog from a distance uh, or after the fact it's kind of like when you look at a sitcom 10 years or 20 years after it came out you get a different perspective because you're not expecting it to be so timely anymore you know you've forgiven them the, the haircut and the clothing and references they make because you've forgotten you know so when you see something like the honeymooners now it's just it's like from some other era that you you, you can't imagine so you can really i think appreciate the acting and the comedy a lot more
0: i looked at your artwork on your website and i love time shredder
1: Oh, great. I thought
0: it would look really cool on the wall here in MCHQ, my studio. I was like, oh, that is... Were you listening to Sabbath then? Do you remember what you were listening to when you did that one?
1: Mm-hmm. No, I mean, the Time Shredder stuff uh, is artwork that is a combination of stuff I do. Me, obviously, because it was taken... You know, Do you know how that stuff is made? Like that stuff no, from scene I... art. So you have to imagine... they put you in a a room, turn all the lights off. You're wearing these gloves that have led lights in them. And in my case, I'm sitting down with my guitar and, and then I'm playing, I'm actually plugged into an amp, and I'm just playing like crazy and they're taking pictures and you don't know what they look like because you're in the dark and it's time exposure. I thought you uh,
0: painted that.
1: uh, No. Well, see, there's, there's levels. There's, the time shredder. That's just the manipulated photograph by, by Ravi and, and, and Corey from, uh, from scene Four art collective. And then there's the mixed media pieces, which is the time shredders plus my painting on top of it. Oh. There's also the time shredder where they take the photographs of my other artwork and they work the color schemes into the photograph. Uh, it, it's complicated. Uh, and then finally, just pure canvas art and me painting on guitars is what's been in the Wentworth galleries of the last few months that we've started doing those, uh, those shows. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really been an explosion of art for me this, the past few years, starting in 2019, I guess.
0: And then there's the comic books, too. It's like one would be satisfied with just being able to play guitar, but you've got all of these ideas that kind of always fold back into the music.
1: Yeah, they all seem to relate to each other. Uh, My company, Satch Tunes, is really just me and this other crazy guitar player, a guy named Ned Ebbett, super uh, talented singer-songwriter, great uh, writer, and uh um, maker of art of all kinds, uh, incredible voiceover artists as well. We started uh maybe about eight or nine years ago, tunes and started writing stories that we could turn into animated shorts, comic books, you know, hopefully full-length feature films at some point. And uh currently uh through Heavy Metal Magazine and Incendium, we've been publishing the Crystal Planet. Uh, comic books, and we'll we'll have uh, the graphic novels out this year as well, um, and that's a story that really started from Ned offering to do a video from uh, for one of my songs from the Unstoppable Momentum album that we were going to use on tour just as a backdrop that backdrop during the the show, and um, and then it it sort of took on a life of its own, and then we wrote this entire novel around this character who tries to save future Earth from its uh, its uh, unfortunate uh, metamorphosis in, into a horrible crystal planet. Anyway, that's a whole other interview. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, yeah, space but the music, is- yeah, the idea of the music and the art and storytelling uh, coming together, uh, that's great. I mean, that's normal for us.
0: Space has been on the news so much with all of these different tech billionaires and their ships going up. Would you ever want to go on one of those spaceships? And if not, is it because you really are an alien?
1: (laughs) Well, I may be an alien. I certainly (laughs) kind of feel that way every morning. But um, I think uh, if there was uh, if you could actually get somewhere uh, in a spaceship these days, then I would definitely sign up for it. I'm not interested in, you know, 11 minutes uh, in the stratosphere and then coming down to me. Uh, that's that's nowhere near as exciting as stepping on stage. Um, and, and I think getting on stage is probably more <laughs> dangerous. But if you could actually get to Mars and hang out for a while and get back, now that would be interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I was led to believe by Star Trek when I was a little kid that by the time I grew up that I'd be traveling through distant galaxies all over the universe. So I'm kind of disappointed, you know, no flying cars. That, no that's what I was going to say. Like,
0: we got promised the flying cars, which was supposed to alleviate traffic. Where are they? The the George yeah. Jetson briefcase car. Where is that?
1: <laughs> I know it's, it's disappointing, uh, but we, but we do have Starbucks and, and, you <laughs> know, microwave popcorn. So I guess there are some things that we accomplished. <laughs>
0: When it comes to being able you talk about getting on stage when it comes to being able to actually go and do that again, because for a long while, we weren't really sure when it was going to be possible, how it was going to work. And now we're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and it's not an oncoming train, at least when it comes to COVID. Um, Hmm. What was it like for you to be separated from your fan base for that long of a period of time when you couldn't tour?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's gut wrenching. It's yeah. I mean, it's terrible. It just feels all wrong. It's uh disorienting, you know, especially it's sort of like you have this inertia that builds up, you know, after 35 plus years of constantly moving and being in front of thousands of people and all of a sudden you're standing still <laughs> and there's a very small circle of people that you see every day that was that, you know, It's almost like you can almost hear something coming to a screeching halt. You don't know what that sound is in your head. Um, So that's been terrible.
0: And you even had to record remote, right?
1: Yes. The whole album recorded without seeing anybody, which is crazy. I haven't actually met my keyboard player yet. What? Yes. So Ray Thistlethwaite is from Australia. He plays in a band called Thirsty Merc. And uh, I met him right at the beginning uh, via email and, and FaceTime at the beginning of 2020. Then the first lockdown happened and he got stuck in Australia. And ever since then, we've never been anywhere near each other uh, for the last few years, but we've completed an album and we've, you know, he's, uh, this week he's going to be filming his part of the video remotely, I think in Melbourne, uh, Australia. So, um, yeah. <laughs> We'll we'll see each other this year. I, I guarantee it, but it's been pretty weird. <laughs> um, I, you know, one thing that was so nice, a, a few weeks ago, I had two art shows in Miami and, you know, going into it, it was really freaky because, you know, I walk in and I, I see my artwork on the wall and it's like hearing your song on the radio for the first time. It's just really disorienting and wonderful. But I suddenly realize wow, this is what it was like, you know, a couple of years ago. You get to meet the fans and talk to them and hang out. And it's normal, you know, to have this exchange uh and talk about music and art and just anything. Uh so I I do miss it. And I and uh but I'm happy uh as you are to see that slowly things are beginning to return to some kind of normal. So it's still tough and and I know that we'll be probably uh mentioning that we can't make our spring tour in Europe uh, not only covid but now uh, the, the war breaking out in the uh, Ukraine is making things even more difficult. we had 17 countries I think to traverse some of them right there uh so um, yeah what a mess
0: it's horrible. Yeah, Green Day just announced that they're canceling their Moscow show I mean there's and it and the world is evolving by the minute. So even by the time people hear this interview, it's going to be different than it was right now while you and I are talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to being kind of locked down, right? So you're the artist that's painting and the comics and working on all this music. Uh, did you do anything that was completely non-related to music and you're hoping that that kind of sticks? Like, did you get into gardening? Did you do jigsaw puzzles? Like there were so many musicians doing these kind of out of the ordinary kind of activities and really found out that they kind of loved them. Did you do anything like that?
1: Well, there was a good, uh, stretch there about 12 plus years. I was really getting into snowboarding and, um, but what it's funny, one day I was up on top of a run, uh, and I'd been snowboarding all day with my son and I sat down and I just thought, I can't believe I haven't broken anything <laughs> in all these years. I must be crazy. So I remember turning to Zizi and saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to cruise on down and, and hang it up for good. You know, and it was just a weird moment where you realize sometimes that a uh, a hobby may have taken, you know, have, could have been as exciting as it was snowboarding, but it may have taken you down a dangerous Route, you know, and um, you
0: kind of need so, your hands, Joe Satriani.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, I got lucky there, but my, well, you know, s- snowboarding in the Sierras is just amazing. Um, I think that the, the artwork has been that thing for me. It always has been. I, it kind of crept up on me because it was just something that was so normal that I thought everybody did it. Um, And so that, that has been the thing. I always come back from tours with sketchbooks filled with silly drawings. And, and there's always one thing that turns into artwork that winds up on a hat for the next tour or t-shirt or winds up in the CD package or a guitar strap or a pick or something like that. Um, So now I've got a bigger outlet for my artistic urges, which is really great. And it seems like the, the more that door opens, the more creativity I have that I want to, you know, push in that direction. Uh,
0: a lot of people bought guitars during the lockdown. They sold more guitars than almost anything. Can you yeah. give us, can you give some advice to the novice that's sitting at home with a brand new guitar, trying to figure out what the hell to do with it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the great thing is that, uh, there's YouTube now Um, which I think is really good for the person who really just wants to learn as quickly as possible how to play their favorite song. And I think that was always the deterrent in the old days when, you know, you said you want to learn how to play guitar. Someone says, well, you got to get a guitar teacher. And you're like, well, I don't want some sit in a room with some crazy guy, you know, plays music I hate, (laughs) who's going to make me learn jingle bells or some scale that I never want to play, you know. And uh, I knew this, you know, when I was teaching a lot, I realized that when you get a 10 year old kid, he walks in and, you know, and he wants to know, uh, you know, a Metallica song, you teach him a Metallica song. You don't say no and teach him some other song that he doesn't like (laughs) or that is from generation. You know, prior generation or something. Dean DeLeo
0: from Stone Temple Pilots told me that's why he quit his guitar lessons. He goes, all I want to do is learn Kiss Alive side one. That's all I wanted to do.
1: Yeah. So I think guitar teachers should just do that because there's a way to introduce the basics of music slowly. But if you turn off that enthusiasm in your student, whether they're a grown up or they're a, a young kid, you're really doing them a disservice. So And when I was, there was a 10 year stretch that I was teaching, uh, when I first arrived in California and it was just, you know, teaching in the back of a music store. Um, and I did have, you know, Alex Skolnick and Larry Lalonde and and Kirk Hammett and, you know,
0: Didn't you teach uh, Steve Vai?
1: Yeah. Back when we were growing up together on on Long Island, that's, uh, yeah, he was one of my first students, best student you'd ever hope to have, (laughs) uh, But, um, you know, there there are ways that you can sneak in uh, the basics that are really important to create a good foundation for any student. But you have to know, you you know, and let's say with, with Kirk Hammett, he had a job he could already play. He was the lead guitar player in Exodus. And while we were doing lessons, he became the guitar player in Metallica. So, you know, I had to obviously taper the lessons to what he needed for that moment, which is gonna be different from a guy I was teaching later on in the day who was a race car driver or a school teacher, or the girl came in and, and she's 12 and she just wants to learn the music that she loves. So obviously, you don't have a sort of one method, you know. You you have to look at the student and give and design a special thing. So anyway, today you can go right to YouTube because you I mean, I guarantee you there's someone who has published uh, a tutorial on how to use, you know, tune your guitar and play in a simplified version, anything by Steve Byde, Van Halen, whatever you want, you know. <laughs> uh, and and so you might as well. It's really great when you can see somebody do it. It, it. There's something really to that because a lot of people are visual learners like that. And it's really good, I think, for for young musicians to see another body going through the motions from the angle that they don't get to see because they're over here. You know what I mean? They're behind their fingers as opposed to in front of them. Um, and and, uh, so that's what I would do. And then of course, memorize every note uh, on every string, on every fret. And you know, I've got a lot, that's in the bad news department, but I bear <laughs> you that. <laughs> there's always hard work. Eventually you got to do.
0: You came in to the radio station and gave me a private lesson and told me that the first thing I needed to do is cut my fingernails. And, <laughs> and so I tell everyone I could have been a great guitar player, but I just don't want to cut my fingernails. That's what Joe Satriani told me. So I was probably your worst student ever. <laughs>
1: That's okay. No, I've come up against that, uh, quite a bit, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Joe, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It's so good to see you, even though it's in this way, but at least technology is kind of allowing us to be able to move forward, even though the world has kind of gone crazy. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to see you and it's great that you're still on the airwaves. Thank you. Thank you for playing the music
0: hell yeah congratulations on the new record and it will be nice to actually be able to see you in person and for you to be in the same room as your keyboard player finally yeah
1: that would be great
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right i'll see you later thank you
1: bye take care
0: There he is, Joe Satriani. His new album, The Elephants of Mars, is out on April 8th. If you're looking for Joe online, you can find all of his links in the show notes of this podcast. There's also a link for the corresponding playlist, which is filled with all of the music that we talked about on this episode. And there's so much shredding. You'll also find all of my links there as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast so you don't miss anything new full-length episodes come out every wednesday plus you get the sit rep the situation report is all your rock news music headlines and industry info in less than five minutes every weekday and this week to celebrate the second anniversary of my video streaming show cocktails in the war room which you can watch every tuesday night at eight thirty eastern on my facebook page Use the code CITWR2 in my online store to get 20% off cocktails in the war room, shirts and hoodies, and Mistress Carrie beer koozies, pint glasses, and shot glasses. Huge thanks once again to everyone with a Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. Get details on my radio show, read my blog, check out my photos, and so much more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.